morning, saints. Praise the Lord. We're going to be in uh, Matthew chapter 7. We are actually going to wrap up the Sermon on the Mount. We've been going through this for a while now. And I felt led to wrap it up today. Because Jesus basically, you're going to see where we're starting here in verse, uh, let's see, uh, verse 13 is basically wrapping up his sermon. And he basically, the rest of this chapter is uh, concluding everything he had said prior. So let's pray before we get into the word of God. Lord, I thank you that same voice that spoke to these people 2,000 years ago that when you were done, they were astonished. They, they were like, we haven't heard anyone like this. He's not like the teachers we're used to. There's an authority when he speaks. And Lord, it's because your words were spirit and they were life. And they were straight from the throne room of God, straight from the Father's heart. And they were truth. And everything will be determined by what you said and what men do with what you said. So, Lord, as we look at your word, help us, like you said, take heed how we listen. Let your word do in us what you desire for it to do in us, Lord. Don't let us just be hearers, Lord. Help us to respond to your words because they're life. Your words are life, Lord. Everything outside of you and your words is, is death. So, Lord, I thank you that you came to bring life. You didn't come to condemn anybody. You came to invite us into life, into eternal life. You made a way for us, Lord. And I pray, give us ears to hear what you're wanting to say to us this morning, especially those, Lord, who maybe have not responded the way they've needed to. God, soften their hearts. God, help them to hear what the Spirit is saying to them this morning, I pray. And I trust you to help me, Lord. Just push me aside. Get me out of the way, Lord. I pray your spirit would speak to us and open your word and reveal your heart and your truths that we so desperately need in this hour. So I thank you and I trust you to have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me just go ahead and read these two verses in chapter 7. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. So we have to think about everything he has said prior to this, for this to really make sense to us because he proceeded before this to describe what true faith, what the true Christian life looks like. He starts with the 
Beatitudes in chapter 5, and he shows us seven spiritual qualities that should be present in the life of a believer. The first one being the most important. It really is foundational to our faith. It's called poverty of spirit. It's the understanding that there is absolutely nothing in and of myself that I can bring to God, I can trust in. There is no way to save myself. I am utterly, utterly at the mercy of God. And if he doesn't have mercy on me, there's no hope for me. And we go to him in that realization that we're lost. We're lost and there's nothing we can do. But he has done what we can't do. And we come and we simply repent and we turn to him and we ask him to give us what only he can. And that's forgiveness. And when we pray that prayer, something happens in heaven. I used to talk about this a lot when we would go visit churches. And uh, it was just amazing to me how many people would come up afterward and say, man, we don't hear things like this. And what I want to really say to you this morning is what I'm going to share with you today really is just like basic Christianity. It's Christianity 101, but yet it sounds so radical. Think about Jesus' whole Sermon on the Mount. It sounds so radical to the gospel we're typically presented in the American church in the last few decades. And, you know, the reality of faith is, is this. When we pray, when we repent, when we come to that place of poverty, what follows that is a total, total uh, annihilation, I should say, of our lives, of our way of thinking, and a whole new set of thinking and way of life uh, basically defines who we are. Because we go from being in a kingdom of darkness, blind, just dead spiritually, into a kingdom of light where everything is different. And that's basically what Jesus is describing in the whole Sermon on the Mount is what the kingdom of God looks like and what the people that are in it look like. But it's kind of like this. I used to relate this to World War II, kind of near the end of the war, where there was a day called D-Day. And basically what it was, um, it was a planned invasion of France and other countries where... The allies, which was America and all the different countries fighting together, were finally going to, like, give one push to start driving the Germans back inland and to conquer them. So this invasion, it was the greatest invasion ever. I mean, I forget how many ships or whatever. But the Germans found out about it and they understood there was only one way this invasion would fail. And it was that they could hold them on the beach. Because if they can hold them on the beach, they'd suffer a lot of casualties. They wouldn't be able to supply themselves, and eventually they would have to pull back. So what'd they do? Well, the Germans lined the shore with machine guns and bunkers and everything because they knew we got to hold them on the beach. Well, when you pray and you repent and you ask God to come into your life, do you know what happens God plans an invasion. He musters his army, and his desire 
His will is to conquer you, is to conquer your heart, your life, everything about you. Here's the problem, and this happens to a lot of people. They see God's army coming, and they finally realize, like, oh, this means my kingdom's over? I mean, God wants me to let go of my life, my life in this world, my life as I know it, everything? And what do they do? They get their machine guns, they put up bunkers, and they tell the Lord, no further. Lord, you can live on the beach of my life, but I'm still king in this domain. And this is what Jesus is talking about in these verses. Because you're either on one or the other path. You're either on this narrow way he's talking about. It's a narrow gate. It's a way that leads to life. Or you're on a broad way. I was one of those people. I was in church for years. But I was not conquered. I told the Lord, no further. I'm still in control of my life. You can live on the outskirts of my life. And I didn't realize it until 28 years ago, after being a so-called Christian for maybe six or seven, that I was not on a way that led to life. I was still on the broad way. And I had a rude awakening, thankfully. And God helped me to choose the right pathway. And that's my prayer this morning for you or anybody listening. Because so many in the church are living their lives with God on the beach. And that's why the work is, the, the, the church is sickly. And that's why so many Christians live defeated lives that do not experience the power of gospel in their lives. So Jesus is wanting to help us and I just pray we can let him speak to us this morning. So here we come now as Jesus wraps up his sermon. And he basically, I want you to picture this in your mind. He's been sharing with them for a long time. And he finally kind of turns to them and he paints a picture in their mind. And it's of a person maybe going through life, and they come to two gates. One's narrow, and one's really broad. One has a lot of people walking on it. The other one, it kind of reminded me when I used to take the subway in New York, like one of those turnstiles, where in New York you have all these people rushing down the stairs to get their train, but they got to go through this little narrow train saw, and you can only go through one by one. And they're really skinny. If you got a lot of stuff on you, you ain't going to make it through. That's the picture he's painting. But the other one, it's easy. Just you, The masses are just trudging along it, no problem. Heading headlong to destruction. Not understanding they're on the wrong road. They're in the wrong way. So as he turns and he paints this picture, he basically says, okay, you've listened to everything I've said, and now I am showing you there's only two ways to go with this. What are you going to do about it? Or which path are you on? 
do we just say, wow, Jesus, that was a great sermon. Is that what he's looking for? That's not what Jesus was after. I like hearing that, if I'm honest. Great word, pastor. That's not what I'm after. What'd you do with it? Or what'd you do about it? I always think of Ezekiel 33, where God is speaking to the prophet, and he's warning them, he's telling them, you know, what's going to happen if they don't turn, if they don't repent. And it says at the end of the chapter of Ezekiel 33 that these people, they come... I'll just read it. They come as to you as people do. They sit before you as my people. They hear your words, but they don't do them. With their mouth, they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. In other words, they're still living for themselves. Indeed, you are to them as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice, who can play well on an instrument. They hear your words, but they do not do them. But when this comes to pass, in other words, in the end, when judgment finally comes, they're going to know a prophet was speaking to them. God was speaking to them. And that is the sad reality for every person on the planet Earth. In the end, when we stand before the judgment, we're going to know this was true. What God said was true. And obviously, for those of us that responded, it will be a time of rejoicing, even though it'll be in fear and trembling. Just the thought of it. So Jesus wasn't looking for applause. He was looking for a response. Jesus' words we're seeing are meant to be lived out. So let's just look at this verse. Let's break this down a little bit. He starts off by saying, enter by the narrow gate. This is important. This is really, really important. Just think about that turnstile versus this broad gate. In other words, that's the entrance. The gate is the entrance. It's not like we come to God and then little by little we get on the narrow way. No, he's painting a picture. He's saying you enter that way. Unless you enter that way, you're not on that way. So at some point, and I understand it's kind of like me being in the church for seven years. I played around the gate, but I never went through it. At some point, I had to go through it. And I remember when that happened. So we could be in church for years, but have we gone through the gate or are we outside of it? Is God living on the beach of our lives? Because the gate itself is the very way we enter into this life and it's narrow. This is so important because when we think about modern evangelism, what has it done? It's made the gospel wide. We've made salvation palatable. In other words, it's not hard. It's not difficult. It's easy. Just ask Jesus into your life. Just include him into your life. Jesus is going to make everything better. Jesus will meet all your needs. I mean, some of these things are true. But Jesus doesn't say that. We see further on. He says, no, this is going to be difficult. You're going to suffer if you follow me. 
You're going to have to forsake everything. And we'll see what that looks like here in a minute. Christianity isn't presented as a narrow life anymore. It's just kind of an add-in in our life. Yeah, just got let God hang out on the beach, man. You're good. It doesn't cost people much. It doesn't present them with, like, their life has to change a whole lot. Just maybe a few things, a few alterations here and there. We need to be awakened to the reality of what Jesus is saying in these verses. We need to be awakened to the realities of the message of the cross and its implications on our lives. When you think about the gospel Jesus presents, there is no compromise. It starts out narrow, it continues narrow, and it's difficult. It's not an easy path. We're told at the very outset of this way of life, before we start on it, that if we're going to walk there, there's certain things that have to be left behind. We can't fit through that gate taking our old life with us. Here's just a few. Jesus said, unless you forsake your life, right? That could mean a lot of things. Um, one thing it means is your life in this world. In other words, you understand we're all born on the Broadway. Before salvation, we're all on the Broadway. There's no middle ground. Jesus is just painting a picture, you know, of a person coming up to this crossroad. But really, we're either on one or the other. You understand that, right? So all of us at some time in our life, we were on the Broadway. And when Jesus came and the message of the cross came and impacted us and pierced our hearts and we were undone and we understood our end, that we were doomed. But yet there was another pathway that God had made that leads to life. We made a choice, right? And I know a lot of you have. And the one choice was, I'm not going with that crowd anymore. I'm leaving the crowd of the world behind. I'm not going with them anymore. Right? So that's one thing. We're making a break with the world. We're saying, I'm not with them anymore. Now, I'm not talking about becoming a monk or, you know, sometimes we get it in our mind that, okay, that means we got to separate ourselves. We're going to live our, our own little community. We're not going to be around those people. Well, Jesus said, no, you need to go out into the world. You need to be salt and light. That's not what this is talking about. It's a mindset. Because you can go off and be a monk. You can go off and live in a community and still have the spirit of the world in your heart. That's not going to rid you of the spirit of the world. The Bible says it in this way, in 1 John 2. Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. That's what the world is in. 
That's what the crowd is in. You could see it on the news, right? You could see it in everything there is about this world. In, in TV, in Hollywood, in entertainment, every aspect of this world. Those are the three things that define it. That's the mindset. That's the spirit of it. And we're told if we're of the Father, if we're going to go through that straight gate, we're leaving that spirit behind, that way of thinking, that way of doing life. The gospel calls us to leave outside that corrupt, worldly way of thinking, living the way we used to live in, because there's no room. And Jesus warns against the danger of an easy salvation. You know that phrase, just come as you are? That's true. When you come to the cross and you need forgiveness, thank God. He died for me when I was a sinner. And we are entreated to come just as we are. But we're not to remain as we are. Okay? So, yeah, we come as we are. (laughs) That's the whole idea of poverty. There's nothing I can bring to God. But he gives me what I need. He forgives me. He cleanses me. And if that's real to me, if I understand what has just happened to me, that I was doomed, there was no hope for me. My sin was ever before me. All I could see was, oh, wretched man am I. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Oh, I thank God for Jesus. That's the wonder of the message of the cross. That's the power of the message of the cross. That even though I am what I am, a wretched sinner, he's forgiven me. He's clothed me. He's put on his robe of righteousness. That demands a response. Or I should say there's a natural response that comes with that, and it's this. It's what we're looking at. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 4. He's basically reminding them here. and We can forget sometimes. Even though we've gone through this straight gate, we forget. And I guess he's reminding them. Ephesians 4.17, he says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, in the way the crowd thinks, the world. Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. You have not so learned Christ, if you've been taught by him. And the truth is in Jesus that you put off concerning your former conduct. The old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lust. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So we see here in these verses, it's not just the way or love of the world we have to leave behind. It's our very self. And this is where most stumble. Like, okay, yeah, I got to deny the world. Oh, yeah, I can't think that way. 
But then it gets even narrower. It says, no, you got to deny you. Your life is over. And that's where, you know, we get the machine guns out. That's what I did, I'm telling you, for many years. And I knew. I knew God was after my life, but I was unwilling. I wanted to somehow have God just included in my life. So if we really want to come to this way of life Jesus is describing, we got to leave ourself outside. And self is basically the fallen nature. It's the old man that Paul's talking about. That has to be left outside. Put off the old man. Put him outside. Crucify the old man. Because the self-life has no place in the kingdom of God. If you think about the Sermon on the Mount, how in the world could you live out the words of Jesus if you don't die to self? Love your enemies. Pray for those who spitefully use you. How do we do that if we're not crucifying self? We don't deny self, right? Again, Jesus said in Luke 9, Verse 23, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross daily and follow me. So that now presents another picture, doesn't it? It means I have to continue in it. It's not a one-time thing. Galatians 5.24 says those who are of Christ have crucified the flesh, which is passions and desire. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that lives. Then in 2 Corinthians 5, he says basically why. He, it's, he says it's because of the love of Christ that I'm compelled to live this way. Again, we go back to the beginning of Jesus' sermon. If those spiritual qualities are there, you've been broken, you've experienced being poor in spirit, bankrupt, you've mourned over your sin, you've received the mercy and forgiveness of God. Blessed are the meek that surrender. It's natural. It's just a natural response of the wonder of his love, the, the revelation of how much God really did love us through the work of the cross and does love us love so amazing love so divine it demands what our all that song says it's just a proper response but it's not just in the beginning it continues on because he goes on in that verse he says difficult is the way which leads to life in other words it's narrow the Christian life is narrow from beginning to end we don't go through and then it gets easy and broad. Hey, you know, no, it stays narrow. If anything, it gets even more narrow because God's constantly dealing with things that we somehow smuggled in <laughs> through the gate or we picked up somewhere along the way. We do that. We pick things back up. And God's constantly having to get that out of us, the love of the world. That old way of thinking, right? And that's a process. But it's it's a fight of faith. Um, Troy gave a wonderful talk Friday night on persevering faith. And that's it's a fight of faith. Our faith 
it's like Paul said, running that race, man. And we do it with all our heart, with everything we have in us. It's like we're going to win the race. And he's picturing faith there. It's our whole life. We don't stop and say, oh, I'm going to sit down. No, it's, there's no holidays. We think there is, but there aren't. It involves suffering, people attacking us from every side, things oppressing us, wrestling against principalities, spiritual forces, against the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. That's the life we're called to. Now, you're going to see later... There's a reason why there's joy in living that way. Jesus isn't painting a bleak picture. He's just being honest with what it's going to mean to follow him. That's all. And if, if you think it's hard, if you're, you know, like me, can complain sometimes, why is it got to be so hard? I want you to think about people on the Broadway, okay? Okay. Just think about their lives. Think about their living for the pleasures of this world. They're going from one thing to another thing. They're striving for more money. For what? So they can get more of what they want. They live for it. But yet Jesus says, what profit is it a man if he gains the whole world? But he loses his own soul. What profit is it a man if he gains the whole world and he himself is destroyed or lost? That's what they don't understand. Why? Because the God of this world has blinded their eyes. That's why I grieve when I see people or I, I get around people. You can see the lostness. And I remember what it was like living that way. And my heart goes out because they don't understand where they're headed. They don't understand that one day everything's going to change. And they are going to be in a nightmare. Not just for one night, but for all of eternity. That's why it's so urgent for us to compel them to get on the right way. That's why. If you're on the narrow way again and you think it's difficult, just think about the fool on the Broadway. There's a psalm, uh, Psalm 73, that the Lord used to help me. Because I know we feel this way sometimes. We look at the world, especially sometimes, I hate to say it, we look at our politicians, we look at just people in general, and it just seems like they get everything, like they prosper, uh, they get away with everything. I mean, they could just out and out lie. And get away with it. And it just seems like they're having their day, you know. And, and that's how we feel sometimes. Like, man, these people, they just like get away with everything. And they seem fine. They seem like they're happy. So what's wrong with me? And Psalm 73 kind of deals with that. And it actually caused them to almost stumble. And we can stumble if we're just looking at the outward of what we see. And they seemingly are happy. They're seemingly getting everything they want or whatever. Or getting away with things. 
He says, I was envious. I was boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There's no pangs in their death. Their strength is firm. They don't have trouble like other men, nor are they plagued. They pride, pride it serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than the heart could wish. They scoff. They speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongue walks through the earth. I always think of the talking heads on TV when I read that. You know, they... They say, how does God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the young God. They're always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I've cleansed my heart in vain. Oh, what's the use? All day long I'm plagued. I'm chastened every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. So when I thought about how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Lord, I don't get it. Until... I went to the sanctuary of the Lord. You know, that, that kind of shows us the importance of gathering together. It helps us remind each other what we're really living for. This is an encouragement, exhorting one another as we see the day approach. That's why this is important. We need it in our own lives. But that's why fellowship is so important. Because we're out in the world, we're intermingling, and we don't realize we can get caught up in that. We can get caught up in our lives in this world. We have to be reminded of these things. So he says, then I understood their end. Jesus said, their end is destruction. He didn't say that, I'm saying it. Oh, how they are brought down to destruction as in a moment they are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved. And I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me. You will guide me with your counsel. And afterward... You will receive me to glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? There is none upon the earth that I desire beside you. My flesh, my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion of forever. We need to say this to ourselves. So don't look at the world and envy the world. We need to remind ourselves... And it's good for us to do that. Every day you wake up, I'm a child of God. I'm a unique person. I'm not like the crowd. I belong to the family of God. Jesus died for me. Jesus translated me from the kingdom of darkness in the kingdom of light. I'm a child of light now. I'm going to heaven. I'm destined for that. I'm destined for a better place. I'm going on to an inheritance which is incorruptible, undefiled, which doesn't fade away. And it's reserved in heaven by God for me. We need to say that to ourselves every day. And then remember, those in the world that look so happy one day, when they're decrepit in their old age, 
and the last enemy comes to meet them, where they can't drink anymore or smoke or dance or do the things that they enjoyed in their life, when they're on their deathbed, now what do they have? All they have now is fear, horror, and torment and destruction. That's the end of that life. And we need to remind ourselves that's the end of people that God has called us to be a light to. They don't know it, but we know it, and God knows it. But yet life on the narrow way leads to life, and life more abundantly. And Peter says, therefore in this you can greatly rejoice, even if though now need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So many scriptures we can use to remind ourselves when it feels difficult, when it feels like the world... (laughs) It's having its heyday, and what I'm doing doesn't matter. You need to remind yourself of what your end is. So how do I know if I'm on the right path? Well, Jesus goes on in chapter 7, and he says there's a test to know who's on the narrow way. And it's basically a test of fruit. You see, there's many people that can talk the talk. There's many people that can conform outwardly to some things. That's kind of what Jesus was getting at in this sermon. But if someone is truly on the narrow way, it's going to be evidenced in their life. There's going to be fruit that shows that they're on the narrow way. And so Jesus says it this way in verse 15. So beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. And he's describing here false teachers who are presenting a false gospel, who are presenting a gospel that leads to the broad way. Beware, you'll know them by their fruit. Do men gather grapes from, from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Therefore, by your, their fruits, you will know them. So go back and look at the Sermon on the Mount. Do these fruits exemplify themselves in my life? Is God producing these kinds of fruits in my life? And then he goes on and he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. 
Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's frightening to consider. Yeah, I'm on the narrow way. I'm on the narrow way. And we stand before Jesus and says, no, you're on the Broadway. And you've been on the Broadway your whole life. Depart from me. I don't know who you are. You lived your life for yourself. You pursued the world just like everyone else. Yeah, you went to church on Sunday. Yeah, you knew how to talk like a Christian. But your heart was not with me. You allowed me on the beach of your life. You've never let me come in and conquer you. You who practice lawlessness, it's still a rebel, still got the rebel nature ruling and reigning inside. Uh, you know, this is real to me because I was that guy. If you, When Rose married me, she thought I was a Christian. I mean, she didn't have much discernment back then. If she did, she would have quickly like, no, this guy does not know the Lord. But she didn't know. Most people didn't know because today it's very easy to look like a Christian. Because we don't have a very high standard of what that looks like. So that was me. I was a rebel. I was still a rebel. I was still in control of my life. I'm so thankful God got a hold of me somehow and helped me to see, Jeff, you're not on the narrow way. That was a rude awakening for me, but I'm so thankful for it. And then I had to choose. We all have to choose. And, you know, ultimately it's going to be revealed who is on the right pathway. There's a final test that comes and proves whether or not we're truly on the narrow way. And Jesus finishes his sermon with that. And, you know, I think we're coming into a time, I can almost say I know, where the church in America is going to be so tried by fire, we're going to know who's the real deal and who isn't. And Jesus describes it here. He says, therefore, verse 24, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man. Who built his house on the sand and the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house and it fell and great was its fall. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. And that was so true. I don't even think they understood what they just said. But the truth of that statement is that 
Jesus has given, been given all authority. And all that's going to matter in the end is what he said. Not what I think. Not what so-and-so thinks on the internet. Not what your parents think. Not what your brother thinks. Not what the guy at work thinks. But what Jesus said. That's all that's going to matter. And what did I do about what he said? Did I really listen? Did I hear the way he wanted me to hear? This wasn't just opinions or traditions Jesus was talking about. It was the word of God. It was from God himself, standing before them in the flesh. So when he says these things, whoever does these things of mine, we have to go back. To chapter 5, and if we were smart, if we were wise, we would go through very slowly, prayerfully, the whole Sermon on the Mount again and again and again and again, and let it examine our lives. Lord, is this me? Does this describe me? Lord, am I treating others like this? Lord, am I doing this? And just constantly seeking and knocking. If, if you're on the narrow way, if you've made that choice, it's just a constant, Lord, thank you for the Holy Spirit. Lord, open the door. Lord, I want to live like this. Lord, my heart is to follow you with everything. Lord, I want you to conquer me. Lord, my life is yours, God. Whatever you say, I'll do, Lord. Thank you. Give me the Holy Spirit. Empower me to live this way, Lord. And you seek him every day. You cry out for him. Like Pastor Glenn said, save me. Save me from myself every day. Save me from my old way of thinking. Save me from the spirit of this world. God, I want to follow you with everything in me. God, I've committed my way to you, Lord. I've gone through the straight gate. Lord, I'm not going back. I've already decided. And then you have faith to believe him to give you what you need to live the life he's called you to do. Jesus shows us in his sermon that he didn't just come to save us from punishment and hell. He came to save us from ourselves. He came to make us holy. He came to purify a people for himself, zealous for good works. He came to change you. He came to give you a new nature. That's the power of the gospel. So I'm going to finish with this. I'm going to finish with Luke 14. For some reason this came to me this morning. We had a wonderful prayer night, uh, Friday night. And the theme was really on that whole idea of persevering faith and just believing God to raise up a people that are all in. That's I don't know how else to say it. That are all in. There's no one on the sidelines. We're all on this narrow way and we are 100% going on with God and believing Him to work through us and, and to allow us to walk in the good works that He's prepared for us. To have a people on the earth that exemplify what He just preached. <clears throat> and so He's inviting we're in a time right now where 
the line is getting drawn and God's sending out invitations. Now, I know many of you have already responded to that. I understand that. And God understands that. We all kind of waver a little bit here and there. But I know, I know most of your lives. But maybe there are some, you're not there. You think you're in the middle, but really you don't understand. You're still on the wrong pathway. There's an invitation going out. That's the picture here in Luke 14. Someone sitting at the table with Jesus said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And then Jesus said to this man, A certain man gave a great supper, and he invited many. He sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said, I bought a piece of ground, and I must go see it. I ask you to have me excused. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I've married a wife, therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported those things to his master. Then his master, the master of the house became angry and he said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city. Bring in here the poor, the maimed, the lame and the blind. And the servant said, master, it is done as you commanded, but still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges. Compel them to come in that my house shall be filled. The picture I have in my mind is it's like the ark is about to be closed. And God is rousing his people. Compel them to come in. And he's speaking to some of you. Come in before it's too late. Compel them. To come in. That my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. There's a danger of resisting the Holy Spirit. There's a danger of putting off God. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. It's very dangerous to do that. It's the warning there. So it says, Great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father or mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And then he gives a picture here. And this is what I think, this is the problem with evangelism today. I know Glenn doesn't do this. But we don't give people an opportunity to count the cost. We, we give this easy believism gospel that really has no cost to it. They don't even get confronted with the reality of their condition and their lostness and that they're headed for hell for an eternity without God. Coupled with what Jesus did on the cross and their only hope. That if they'll turn and repent and ask forgiveness, he'll he'll forgive them their sins. He'll save them from the wrath of God. And then he'll transfer them 
into the kingdom of light. So Jesus says, which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost? Whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation is not able to finish and all who see it begin to mock, saying, this man begin to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you who does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's kind of the picture Jesus gives us of the two houses. The foolish person that didn't respond, that only listened and didn't do the words of Jesus, never counted the cost. So when it gets hard, they quit. It's the example of the parable and the sower. Either the devil comes and snatches the world or the cares of this life come and choke the world. Tribulation comes. Whatever it is, they fall away. So, some questions I want to ask before we close. Have you decided this way of life? Have you committed yourself to it? Have you chosen it? Is this what you want? Is this what you're endeavoring to be? Is this the life you're hungering and you're thirsting for. Now, I want to say this because I know there's some of you in here. Failure doesn't mean necessarily you're on the broad way. Okay? You can stumble on the narrow way. The difference is you confess, you acknowledge your sin, you walk in the light as he is in the light, and then you, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So this isn't about perfection. It's about a lifestyle. It's about a direction I'm heading in. So again, I know there's many in here, you've made that choice, but you still stumble and fall. But yet you're going in a direction. You get up quickly. Sin doesn't have dominion over your life anymore. That's fine. It's not about perfection. It's a choice to follow Jesus. It's a choice to forsake this world. It's a choice to crucify my life. To die daily. So as we wrap up the Sermon on the Mount... What Jesus has presented here 
is basically what a true Christian looks like, what a true life in God looks like. Do you know him like that? Does that define the reality of the faith you profess to live in? I don't know where everyone's at in this room or those listening, but God does. He sees perfectly. We see in the messages to the churches in the book of Revelation, they see one thing, God sees another thing. I want to know what he sees. And if we're sincere, if we allow the Holy Spirit and the truth of God's word to reveal, to discern, to judge our hearts, God will lead you to repentance. God will grant you repentance. Maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, I'm not sure if that describes it, but I want what you've just described. I want that. I'm kind of tired. I feel like I'm kicking against the goads all the time. I know I'm living my life with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God, even though that's impossible. But you're trying to do it anyway, and you know it. I know I'm living a compromised life. If I get honest with myself and I get over the word of God and I just look at the truth of what it says, I know I am living a compromised life. I'm tired. I don't sense a reality of God in my life. I don't live with the daily conviction that he is with me and in me and that I'm his and that we walk in fellowship and that his life is being manifested in my life. I don't sense that in my life. If that's you, Jesus is standing at the door of your heart. And he's knocking. And he's simply asking for you to open the door. You have to get up and open the door. He's not going to break your door down. And the entrance is to your heart. It's, okay, Lord, I'm taking the machine guns down. I'm not going to fight you anymore. I surrender. That's what God's after. He's looking for the white flag. I surrender, Lord. I want you to come. I want you to conquer me. I just want it to be over. And I want to have you in the way you're wanting to have me. Don't be like those invited to the guests, invited to the wedding feast, resisting, quenching the Holy Spirit. There's a danger in that. Your heart is getting hard. Every time you resist, it's like a callus on your hand. It gets harder and harder, and it gets harder and harder for God to reach you. So if there's any softening today, if there's any inkling, sense that God is speaking to you, don't hesitate. Open the door. 
let Jesus come into your life the way he wants to.